Mind 10 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome back. If you recall, two weeks ago, we did an episode titled Social Justice and the Gospel. And in that episode, we talked about and defined radical feminism. Just as a reminder, radical feminism is that part of the liberal social justice movement today that's trying to eliminate what they call male supremacy by usurping men from all authority and completely emasculating them. Yeah, and in this episode, we aren't going to talk about this kind of radical feminism because, as we said, it's unbiblical. But if you haven't listened to that episode, it's number 86, and we encourage you to. What we're going to talk about today is another kind of feminism, and it's called biblical feminism. And given that biblical feminism is highly in the minority and looked down on and even ridiculed by the world, I'm going to say, Rose, that it is the real radical (laughs) feminism. Definitely. Now, we know what you're all thinking because most sermons, teachings, books, etc. on biblical womanhood always begins and ends with Proverbs 31, the wife of noble character. But Chris, we aren't going there today. Nope. And we're not using Proverbs 31 because one, we've already done an episode on it. Two, in fact, number 23 and 24. And if you've listened to those episodes, you know that while we gave a few different theories on what some believe Proverbs 31 woman is, we concluded, as many have, using scripture that, and I'm going to quote from that episode, The Proverbs 31 woman is to be read as being the perfected church, the bride of Christ, doing what she's supposed to be doing, ultimately glorifying God. Exactly. And part of that conclusion is based on that Jesus is the perfect son of Proverbs. He's ultimately who Solomon is talking about because Jesus is the only one who's perfected the kind of wisdom described in Proverbs. In fact, Jesus is the personification of that wisdom. So it absolutely makes sense that his bride, the Proverbs 31 woman, would be the church and not an actual woman. It's a picture of what the perfected church, all of God's people, men and women, look like. It's like the Beatitudes. It's about our relationship with God and what kingdom life should look like. But none of it will be perfected on this side of heaven. Anyway, you can go back and listen to those two episodes that we did on Proverbs 31 if this is confusing. Right. So we're not using Proverbs 31 to define biblical womanhood, but don't worry. There's plenty of scripture that clearly tells us about what being a godly woman looks like. And it might not be what some of you think. The world has this image, and even some Christians too, that to be a godly woman, you have to be frumpy, boring, and either timid and sickeningly sweet, or abrasive and harshly judgmental. Most of all though, I think the world, and again, a lot of Christians, view Christian womanhood to mean that you're a doormat to be trampled on by men, especially by your husband. But Chris, as you know, none of those characteristics was ever in God's design for women. So let's dig in and find out what is. As we usually do before we dig into what scripture says, we're gonna take a look at what the world believes. We looked up the most popular women in 2020 and uh, this year, 2021, and the criteria used to make that list was success, following, and influence. Let's take a look at some of those people and their beliefs, what they do, their values, and all that kind of stuff. 
I'll start with Katy Perry. Supposedly, Katy Perry's parents are Christian, and she was raised in and even sang in church. She was even going to pursue a career in gospel music, but instead released a song called I Kissed a Girl and I Liked It, which became a number one song. No surprise there. And she changed course. And the video for another of her songs, Dark Horse, is a reenactment of a satanic worship ritual. Big change, of course. Mm -hmm. Another female who made the list is Taylor Swift. We should note that Swift identifies herself as a Christian, even now. And it's kind of ironic considering a recent tweet of hers, which I'm going to quote. It says, witches be like, sometimes I just want to listen to music while pining away, sulking, staring out a window. It's me. I'm witches. Never fear. The Willow Lonely Witch remix is here. Taylor Swift is famous for writing songs about her boyfriends and breakups. And there have been a lot. She even writes songs about fights she has with other female singers. Her song list reads like a tabloid of her life, making private details public in the name of fame and fortune. She recently ditched her country pop scene, though, and is taking her music to a much darker place, hence the witches stuff. Yeah, that's just crazy. <laughs> Even their lyrics are weird. <laughs> I don't know. I was thinking of other lyrics, but I won't say. Anyway, we'll do just a few more. Beyonce's on the list. Besides extremely raunchy lyrics, most of which are foul and disgusting and we can't even quote them, Beyonce and her husband were on the forefront of the Black Lives Matter movement and defunding the police. She appeared on the Super Bowl halftime show and did a whole anti-police set. Funny though, hmm, when we tried to find tangible things that she's done or is doing to help the Black community, all we could find was that she takes on acting roles that showcase struggles that Black women are facing. And it sounds a little self-serving. Yeah, just a tad. Mm. Paris Hilton has made the list, and for one reason, because her ingenious at publicizing a sex tape of herself to help her propel to stardom. And Chris, we're going to just finish up by naming some of the others on the list, and we'll let everyone listening and watching draw their own conclusions. Oprah Winfrey, Kim Kardashian, Cher, Hillary Clinton, and... Justin Bieber, because apparently you don't actually have to be a woman to make the most popular women's list. Okay. Uh. So we get the idea of what the world thinks is a successful woman, powerful, rich, famous, lots of followers, indiscreet, self-serving, and most are concerned very little, if at all, about morality, integrity, or sustaining a monogamous lasting relationship. Now, even if some of these women claim to be Christian, there's little evidence in their life that that's the case. Although we would never blatantly judge someone's heart, that's God's job. But you're known by your fruit. So let's just say they certainly aren't living out their faith that they proclaim to have. They're of the world. So we shouldn't expect them to act any different than those who say that they're not Christian. So this is a secular list of women using secular qualities, and these women are being emulated by non-believers. Why should it matter to us Christians? Well, because it's not just unbelievers who are emulating these women. Absolutely true. Our daughters, and maybe even some of us, are looking up to these women, and in some cases, emulating them. We mentioned this in the social justice episode, but it's worth mentioning again. The successful woman of the 21st century, according to the world, doesn't need a man for anything. She may have one as a companion, but she doesn't need him. 
There's nothing she can't accomplish on her own. She's self-efficient, self-sustaining, self-aware, and self-reliant. She doesn't need anybody. It's her call if she wants to have a baby. Her body, her choice. She may be 5'2", 100 pounds soaking wet, but she can still kick the butt of a bad guy, 6'6", and 250 pounds. Or at least that's what TV and the movies would have you believe. She's the one making the important decisions because she's smarter, more aware, and more clever than any man who might be in her circle. Yeah, and if you think that we're exaggerating, all you have to do is turn on the TV, listen to any podcast or most podcasts, read a magazine, watch YouTube, go on social media, whatever. It's all around us. Women don't need men for anything except perhaps to help out when they, you know, want to have a baby. That's what we're told. But not to be involved in that baby's life unless, you know, the woman says so. Or maybe a man is needed to stay home with the baby while we go out and pursue our dreams. You think we're exaggerating? Why then do all the diaper detergent and baby stuff commercials always have dads with kids and not moms? Okay, now that we've seen the view that the world has on womanhood, let's take a look at what scripture says. Rose, do you want to start this? Sure. And Chris, you and I always say start at the beginning of the Bible. So let's go to Genesis. And I'm sure this is a familiar passage to many. Genesis 1.27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And if we flip over to Genesis 2, 18 to 23, it says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Okay, so there's a few things that these verses tell us. First, the verse in Genesis tells us that God created both man and woman in his image. In God's eyes, men and women have the same worth. One is not superior or inferior to the other. However, when we read the verse in Genesis 2, we see that while men and women have equal worth in God's eyes, they are not the same. Adam was given dominion over every living thing on earth. He needed another human, one like him, but not an exact duplicate. He needed someone who would complement him and help him to be all that God wanted him to be. So out of Adam's ribs, God created woman to be his helper. Rose, this often gets cited to mean that a woman's main job is to help men, specifically her man. They aren't supposed to pursue their own dreams or have their own desires or whatever. And that's not what this verse says at all. God's first pronunciation is that nothing else living on earth was suitable as a companion for Adam and that it's not good for man to be alone. Adam was a social creature. He needed someone suitable to socialize with. In fact, that's how all humans are wired. 
We're wired to be in community with other people. This applies to a husband and wife, but it's not limited to just that because singleness is a biblical state. All people need other people. They were never designed to live in isolation. Theologian Adam Barnes says this, he, Adam, is formed to be social, to hold converse, not only with his superior God, but also with his equal. And yet he is but a unit, an individual. He needs a mate with whom he can take sweet counsel. And the benevolent creator resolves to supply this one. I will make him a helpmeet for him. One who may not only reciprocate his feelings, but take an intelligent and appropriate part in his active pursuits. Matthew Henry and many other biblical scholars reiterate this commentary. Matthew Henry says, how God creatiously pitied his solitude. It is not good that man, this man, should be alone. Though there was an upper world of angels and a lower world of brutes and he between them, Yet there being none of his same nature and rank of beings with himself, none that he could converse familiarly with, he might be truly said to be alone. Now he that made him knew both him and what was good for him, better than he did himself. And he said, it is not good that he should continue thus alone. It is not for his comfort, for a man is a sociable creature. It is a pleasure to him to exchange knowledge and affection with those of his own kind, to inform and to be informed, to love and to be loved. Love that. Mm -hmm. So when it says Eve was created to be a helper to Adam, it's first a small picture of what marriage is designed to be. Both men and women are essential in God's creation and both need each other. Think of it this way. Men are like green crayons and women are like blue crayons. They're both crayons of equal value, but there's some instances where a green crayon is better, like if you want to draw trees or grass. And then there's instances where a blue crayon is a better choice, like if you want to do water or the sky. But to do a complete landscape, you need both green and blue. As 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12 says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. This was God's original design, and it worked perfectly for Adam and Eve. But that was before the fall. As we all know, after the fall, their relationship changed with each other and with God. And the curse that they and every human after them came under has deeply affected how men and women see each other and their relationships. The perfectly designed relationship between husband and wife and men and women was turned upside down. And here's a reminder for everyone of what the curse for Eve and all women was. Genesis 3, 16 says, to the woman, he, meaning God, said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So we're not going to even go into the whole pain and childbirth thing too deeply, because as many of us who've had a baby know that that is a reality. But the second part of the curse, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you, definitely needs a closer look. What's that mean exactly? We should note that this verse has been hotly debated by biblical scholars throughout history. In fact, Chris, as you know, there are six major interpretations of this verse, but we think there's only really one that is truly supported by other scripture. 
Yeah, like we said, Adam and Eve's relationship was perfect. And although they were equals, Adam was the head. Since neither had sinned, Adam was able to lead Eve and Eve was able to submit to Adam in perfect harmony. Neither felt vulnerable or bullied or manipulated by the other. Their relationship was so perfect, they were even able to be naked in front of each other all the time and not even think anything of it. There was a complete trust and faith in each other. But part of that first sin, among other things, was that Eve took the lead and gave the fruit to Adam and told him to eat it. Adam, instead of being a godly leader to Eve and stopping her like he was supposed to be as a leader, meekly accepted it and ate it. So part of this first sin is that Adam and Eve reversed the roles that God had given them. Right. So this part of the curse that your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you is that the desire to lead and be head is going to be a constant temptation for women, but they're still going to be subject to men. When God created Eve, he planned on blessing her and all women with the privilege of bearing children. The fall didn't change that design, but now because of the fall, there's a curse attached to it, pain and childbirth. So the same is true of the second part of the curse. God has always intended a harmonious relationship in marriage or even between men and women where men would lead in godliness and women would submit in godliness. After the fall, he didn't change that design, but now women wouldn't so easily submit. They would desire to want to lead and take charge over their husbands or other men like pastors and leaders of the church. And an outward outflowing of this curse is that sometimes a woman has been forced back into submission and servitude by being mistreated or abused by men. And sometimes men have weakly stepped aside and done nothing while women step up and take the lead. Neither of those is a godly response and both are sinful. So we see that from the fall, men and women's roles have been corrupted by sin. But thankfully, God doesn't leave us to our own devices. Believers have the Bible to look to, to see what God expects of men and women. And we have the Holy Spirit who affirms the truth of the Bible and sanctifies us so that we're able to apply that truth to our lives. So we said that women were not meant to lead over men. Is that all circumstances? Does that apply to all men? It's no to both. And we find these answers from Paul. Paul often gets a bad rap for being a misogynist because he's advocated if someone was single and wanted to serve God, they should remain single. And because of some of his writings that often get taken out of context, and we're going to look at a couple of them. Let's start with one that women are subject to the authority of all men. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. And he says again in Ephesians 5, 22 to 24, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more in depth in the next episode. But Paul and Peter in 1 Peter say that women are to be led by and submit to their own husbands, not every man they come in contact with. Right. And just like the original mandate given by God, this is a two-sided covenant. It's not just women submit to their husbands. Husbands have to hold up their end of the covenant of marriage too. 
Paul goes on in Ephesians 5 to tell us what the husband's end is. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Biblical marriage is meant to model Jesus's relationship with his church for Christians and for the watching world. Exactly. So biblical womanhood means letting your husband lead and be head of the family. It means encouraging him and helping him to be a godly man so he can lead in a way that builds everyone in the family up. Basically, wives are to help their husbands be the man God intends for them to be, while they help their wives become the woman God intends her to be. When this is played out in the way it's meant to be, it's really a beautiful thing. And Chris, you and I can both say from experience, we've each been married well over 30 years to our husbands. We both had rough patches, definitely times we didn't necessarily agree with our husbands. And neither you and I are the timid type to quietly go along with something if we don't agree with it. So, Chris, how would you tell Christian women they should handle this situation if it comes up in their marriage? Well, first, make sure that both sides of the disagreement are biblical. For example, if your husband wants to stop going to church and sleep in on Sundays, then you need to remind him that God intends for his people to meet together in community and it would be dishonoring to God not to do so. And you should definitely go to church, even if he doesn't. But if it's something that neither perspective violates biblical truth, then pray about, you know, whatever the disagreement or situation is. Let's say your husband wants to move. I'll use that, Rose, because you've, you know, been privy to that. But you don't think it's a good idea. You can have an honest, respectful conversation with your spouse, and you should have a conversation about it. Both can lay out the pros and the cons as they see them. And then if you still haven't come to an agreement, and some of you aren't going to like that I'm going to say this, then wives, you need to let your husbands lead and you submit. Yeah. And if that really grates on you, think about something. Jesus submitted to the Father's will while he was on earth. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to the Father that if there was another way to bring about redemption of his people, please do it. But if not, he willingly put aside his own feelings and acquiesced to the Father's will. God's not asking us to do anything Jesus hasn't done. And Chris, you're right. The moving situation definitely affected me twice in the last two years. Both times I wasn't for it. And both times after talking about it and having a respectful conversation, like you said, I submitted and let my husband lead. And you know what? Both times it was the right decision for us. And I'm not saying that this is always going to be the case. Our husbands are human and they're going to make mistakes. But you can never go wrong when your motivation is to honor God and obey what he's commanded you to do. Right. And, and I think that's an important point. Your, your motivation is to honor God. Right. And Rose, 
we should say here that this doesn't mean that anyone should allow themselves or their children to be abused by a spouse. Remember, this is a two-part covenant. And like we said, of course, there will be slip-ups and even sin on both parts. But if one person, whether the husband or the wife, because it could be either, is completely disregarding their part of the covenant and is physically, emotionally, or spiritually abusing their spouse or their children, then you certainly do not have to submit. And you need to get yourself and your children to safety and you need to get help. Amen to that. Okay, back to Paul, who gives another great insight into biblical womanhood. First, let's deal with a verse that often gets misinterpreted, and that's 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. I'm going to quote general reformation here on how these verses should be put into context, because I think they do a good job. They say, Paul's prohibition against women teachers have a context. They're not absolute prohibitions. For starters, reading the verses surrounding those quoted above shows us without question that the context of the requirement for silence is the church. Paul here is not making any comment about women teaching in schools or universities or any other settings. I've known men who objected to a woman teaching adult men in any setting, but this is simply not what Paul's talking about. It's a perversion of this text to insist that women are never to teach men, end quote. First and second Timothy and Titus are pastoral epistles. They're basically a book of church order, how the church should function and run. Right. So Paul isn't saying that women are never to teach men. He is saying that they should not be pastors or elders. And let's you know, realize that, that terminology can screw this discussion up some. So you have to be clear on what you're talking about. They shouldn't preach from the pulpit in the worship service when the entire body is together. And how do we know this is what Paul meant? Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. We aren't going to get into the head covering thing today. We're going to deal with that next week because there's so much disagreement on that. And that's not the point of us reading this text. What is the point is that Paul makes a matter of fact statement that women as well as men were prophesying. So women prophesying or teaching was not an extraordinary event. It was as common or almost as common as men prophesying. Young's Concordance defines this word as public exposition. In other words, teaching. Prophesying in the New Testament is used to mean the same thing as teaching. False prophets, false teachers, same thing here. Strong Conco Strong's Concordance says that the word here, that the prophesying gone on here was meant to encourage, console, and build up the church. And the ironic thing here is that Paul gets flack from women for the verses in 1 Timothy. But Paul is telling women to learn. This shows he's encouraging women to study scripture. His good friends, Priscilla and Aquila, who were a married couple, were teachers. When Paul talks about them, he lists Priscilla first. Some commentators take that to mean that she was the main or more knowledgeable teacher of the two. We don't know for sure. But he also mentions other women in his epistles, calling them fellow servants in the faith. Okay, so to be a biblical woman, you can't be a pastor or an elder or preach on Sunday morning from the pulpit. These are clearly stated in the pastoral epistles, and they go along with the original design that men are to lead. However, 
women can teach in other settings and they can certainly correct false teaching, even if it's from a man. Acts 18, 24 to 26 shows Priscilla and Aquila doing just that with Apollos. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately on the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Okay, so let's go a little faster now and talk about the attributes of a godly woman. Godly women are strong. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is an excellent example of strength. There's also Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna, who traveled with the apostles and Jesus and supported them financially. Godly women have a quiet strength that they recognize comes from God and enables them to handle whatever is thrown their way with the help of the Holy Spirit. Godly women are also modest. They're not trying to get attention or make men stumble in lust by what they wear. They don't use a sex tape to gain notoriety like Paris Hilton did. 1 Timothy 2 verses 9 and 10 says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for a woman who professes godliness with good works. Godly women know their worth is found in who they are in Christ, not what they look like. But notice nowhere does that verse or others about women dressing modestly say that we have to look frumpy when we can wear jewelry. There's absolutely nothing wrong with dressing nice and wearing makeup or doing our hair or feeling confident about our our appearance as long as we dress modestly. Right. Modesty is kind of a subjective term. We know that. But you shouldn't have anything hanging out or showing that's only appropriate for your husband to see. That's a good parameter. The problem arises when we're dressing not so we look attractive for our husband or we to feel good about ourselves. The problem arises when we dress to get the attention of others, especially other men. And as Paul says, our beauty should be radiating from the inside out because of our godliness and good works, not from the outside in. Proverbs 11.22 reiterates this, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Chris, we've all known people who at first we didn't think were very attractive, but once we get to know them because of who they are and their behavior, they become a lot more attractive. And of course, the opposite is true. I remember a movie called Shallow Hal, and it wasn't a great movie, but I like the theme that Hal was given the gift of seeing people on the outside as they were on the inside. So Those who may not have been physically attractive as the world defines looked really attractive to Hal because he was seeing what they looked like on the inside and vice versa. Those who were physically beautiful people looked really ugly to him. I love that. It's a good example. Another attribute that's gotten devalued over the years, though, is our ability to bear and birth children. The bad radical feminists, not the Christian radical feminists, (laughs) say this reduces women to an incubator. I even saw a TV show recently, a female surgeon was lamenting that women have to be the ones to have babies, thereby curtailing their careers and pursuits. You know, it's an incredible honor and blessing 
that God has bestowed upon women to have children. And it's dishonoring to God and insulting to those women who aren't able to conceive to even suggest that it devalues the woman in any way. It doesn't devalue her worth. Right. The Bible's full of women who begged for a chance to have a baby. The world is full of women who desperately want a baby. John 16, 21 is a beautiful verse that encapsulates, even with the curse of the pain of childbirth, what our attitude should be on childbearing. It says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Love that. May those of us with children, whether they're natural born children, adopted, or they're children who are under our care in the church, may we never forget the privilege of God putting his precious little ones under our care. There's nothing degrading or devaluing about it. Other than being saved, it's the highest calling in our life to care for children, whether they're our own or not our own. Okay, let's end with one more attribute biblical women have. And that's that they pass on their wisdom and knowledge to the younger generation of women. Again, whether it's their own daughters or younger women in the church. Titus 2, 3 to 5 says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, so to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. We started off by showing who the women are that the world is looking up to and emulating. If we don't want the younger generation of women to think that these women are what biblical womanhood looks like, because some of them are claiming to be Christians, we need to teach them. We need to teach them by example and by words. And although they, there aren't any guarantees, Proverbs 22, 6, gives us this encouragement. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Like we said, Proverbs Proverbs are not absolute promises, but teaching this younger generation will help lead them to becoming biblical women. It's up to the Holy Spirit what he does with our teaching, but we're supposed to do that. There is a guarantee that not teaching the younger generation will result in their fall, or at least in their stumbling, as Proverbs 29, 15 tells us. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Right. And that's all we have time for today. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, feedback, or questions. Message us on whatever platform you're listening on, or you can always email us at Proverbs910Ministries at gmail.com. And please make sure you subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you're listening or watching. Thanks, everyone. Have a blessed day. 